That's funny. See, I was so loud that in my mind, I was like, oh, I'm on. There you go. Damn, my mic on. That helps. But you guys heard me all right, right? Yeah. Why do I even need my mic, huh? All right, James chapter 3. Third service is going to need me to have a mic, though, if I don't use it. Second. Okay, power of the tongue. Have you guys ever said something you regretted before? Yeah, a lot of things. Have you ever said, have you ever had that moment where you say something and you have instant regret? I'm sure it happens uh, to you quite often as it does me. Or have you ever, have you ever said something and then you immediately thought like, where did that even come from? Like it was almost like an out of body experience where you're like, and you're like, as you're saying it, you're like, what am I, right? And and then it's just too late, right? Have you guys ever experienced that? No, am I the only, only, only weird person? Yeah, exactly. It's something that we have all experienced. And it's so interesting, the power behind this little part of our body in our mouths called the tongue can get us in a world of trouble. Now, the problem with the tongue and when you speak is you can never take back what you said. You can't. You can say, I take it back. Too late. It's toothpaste out of the tube. And unless you are, uh, have a lot of patience and a lot of time, you can't put the toothpaste back. Once you say it, it's done. It's, there is no take backsies, all right? And, you know, the tongue is our best thermometer of where we are at spiritually. You know, they don't make a device that you can go to Walmart and buy where you gauge uh, where your heart is and how spiritually mature you are. They don't have that. Uh, You can look in all the aisles. They won't have it. You can't go to the church bookstore and buy a gauge to see how much, you know, uh, how how close to the Lord you really are and your spiritual maturity. However, the best thermometer that I have found, and I think according to Scripture, one of the best gauges and tests of spiritual maturity and closest to the Lord is what? comes out of our mouths. I want you guys to look on the sides of the room. If you're in the back, you can look to the back. If you've ever noticed, we have these little things called thermostats, all right? You can see them up front, the little blue screen. There's a couple in the back. There's four in this room, all right? You guys know what a thermostat does? All right, so uh, essentially you can go up to that. It tells you, listen, it tells you the temperature. Uh, You can obviously adjust it from there. It is a... uh, built into that thermostat is a clear like thermometer, meaning it takes the temperature of what's happening in the room, right? And in a similar way, what we speak is that thermostat. It is that ability to know, wait, what temperature is it in here, right? Right now it's uh, 73 on that side, 70, man, it's always a little bit hotter on that side. I don't know why. Um, but, but listen, so, so th- that's an indicator of what's happening inside the room, right? And in, in our lives, the only, one of the only indicators to know what is in our heart, right? Our inner person. There's no physical way to measure that. But one of the measures, the gauges, the test is what kind of way and what do we speak? It is a fantastic indicator of what is happening on the inside. Now, we left off finishing chapter two a few weeks ago, pre-Easter and Palm Sunday, talking about our really theme of our book together, which is the fact that faith works, that out of genuine saving faith, 
is going to come a life of production of works, not for the sake of salvation, but as a result of salvation. Remember, uh, Tate had mentioned a few weeks ago how there is that verse that James says in chapter two, that even the demons believe and tremble, which show us that it's not that uh, faith isn't enough, but it's the fact that belief, just believing it, that real faith is not only believing, but it is put into action. Now, as we dive into chapter three, James transitions and changes gears to kind of begin to talk about one of the first works from faith or one of the first evidences of someone's salvation. And it has to do with the tongue, with what we say. I want you to note down as a way of introduction, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. Proverbs 18, verse 21. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat of its fruit. Now, when it says death and power is in the, is, uh, death and life is in the power of the tongue, it's not saying in the sense like, like God, there's literal power, right? Where he says, uh, let there be light. And what is there? There's light. When he says, Lazarus, come forth, what happens? He comes forth. That God is able to speak and things happen, right? Or we know in the second coming, Jesus is going to come back. And the Bible describes that a sword is going to come out of his mouth to which he will speak and strike the nations. It's not actually that Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. It's the fact that Jesus is going to say, you are done. And people will be completely done. Right, God has literal power. Now for you and I, um, we are made in the likeness and in the image of God. And though we can't say, you know, we don't have power in the sense of saying you're dead or you're alive and, and we, don't, we don't have that other than by the spirit of God, there is power. Words of life and words of death. The idea of power is that it has impact. You see, our words have impact which make them powerful, both for life and for death. And so with that, let's dive in to James 3. Look with me in verse 1. And uh, for our time today, we'll, we'll read down to verse 5 and kind of read in sections as we go. All right. So look at verse 1 there. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder. Whenever the pilot desires, even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Let's pray. Well, God, as, as we are talking about words today, uh, we come to your word. Uh, what you have spoken from eternity past, the word of the Lord that endures forever. We know that the, the, the grass will wither, that the flower will fade, but even on into eternity, what we're reading today will continue. And God, we pray that you would speak to us, 
Lord, that you would help us to incline our ear to you, that we would not be distracted, but be focused on what you would speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Now, what we're going to be looking at first is the influence of the tongue. And we find this in the first five verses or so of what we just read. Now, it's kind of an interesting uh, transition and intro in verse one. He begins to talk about those who would consider speaking on behalf of God. Now, as it was clear in our introduction, we're talking about the tongue today. But before he kind of gets into the nitty gritty, uh, we see in verse one that he talks about the most important words that you can ever speak, and that is speaking God's word. And he gives somewhat of a warning here. Notice in verse one, he says, let not many of you become teachers. Uh, Now, this isn't referring to school teachers. Uh, this isn't the fact that he's like, hey, be, be careful. You might not want to consider being a school teacher. No, no. Uh, there's nothing wrong with school teachers. Love school teachers. We have school teachers that are, that are leaders. Now, but he is talking about teachers specifically of the word of God. And he says, let not many of you become teachers of God's word. Now, it's kind of interesting because in my mind, that's kind of opposite of what the Bible would say. You would, you would think the Bible would say like, hey, we need, you know, go and teach the word of God. This is a good thing, which of course it's a good thing. Uh, and there must be an encouragement. But rather than an encouragement here, it's a warning. Now, it's not the fact that James doesn't want people to teach the Bible, but it's the fact that you need to be careful when teaching the Bible with wrong motives. Notice his reasoning here. Look at what he says. He says there in verse one, because they will receive a stricter judgment. You see the purpose why he says, hey, you might want to teach God's word, but make sure you keep in mind that for someone who teaches God's word, there is a stricter, a higher expectation of judgment. You guys know the word strict, right? Some of you guys would define your parents as being strict, that they have high expectations for you. And some would say too strict. Uh, and, and, and what does that mean? It's the idea that there is a higher standard. You would say, oh man, my parents are so much stricter than yours, right? It's the idea that your parents have lower expectations for you than mine. Well, God would say for those who teach my word, his expectations are higher. Meaning that if you teach the word of God, you are now representing God and what you say will have a higher scale of judgment and what you do the, if you practice what you preach did they represent god accurately or did they did they rep, did they misrepresent god did they live the life that they told others to live listen we will all be held accountable for what we say that's what the bible says that we will stand before god one day each and every one of us and we will give an account for every word spoken kind of crazy when you think about how many words we speak. But teachers, those who teach God's word, have a higher strictness. There's less slack, if you will. Let me give it to you, uh, an illustration in this way. Uh, Imagine if you have younger siblings, some of you don't have to imagine, you experienced it this morning. But listen, imagine if you have those younger siblings and it comes to a point where uh, your mom and dad are, are trusting you to kind of watch over them and they're going on a date, okay? And then not even 10 minutes in, 
all your siblings are fighting, the TV breaks, the cat ran away, you can't even find the, little, the littlest one. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, imagine things just go crazy, and so you have to give that dreaded phone call to mom and dad, you gotta come home, right? And so they're not happy, they're, they barely made it to the restaurant, they come back, who is gonna be held most accountable? The oldest, you, you. You, you're like, but, but, but little Susie is four years old, but she did this. It won't matter. You will be held to a stricter standard. Does that make sense? When a similar way for the one who says, I, I want to teach God's word, he says, it's not that God doesn't want us to, but he says, you better beware of what you are doing. You know, it must have been in this time, we don't know, that there might have been those, as there are now, who looked at teaching, God, teachings, uh, teaching of God's word only in the public view. Right? Some people, man, look at Pastor Jack's position. Oh, man, I would just love to be like a senior pastor and teach the Bible. Because why? It's so public. Right? There's this public idea behind teaching the God's word. And so people like that. Ooh, there's, there's power that comes with that. There's position. But, but James would, would say, hey, that's the wrong motive because those who teach, when they stand before God, the, the, the expectation for them is higher. And so if you willingly say, I want to teach God's word, you better have that understanding before you commit to that. Does that make sense? And remember, that, that idea is all wrapped up in what is said. And so in light of this reality, James makes this statement that whether we are a teacher of the word or not, we all stumble in many things. Look there in verse two. He says, for we all stumble or sin in many things. That collectively, right, there's no such thing as a perfect person or a perfect teacher, though the expectation is high. And we all collectively sin. But James here begins to target the source of a whole lot of sin. Look there in verse two. He says, if anyone does not stumble in word, right, we're talking about the tongue, what is spoken, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. You see, that source of sin is often the tongue. And, and notice this claim that he makes. He says, if you, as a follower of God, if you're able to bridle, that word is to control. It's the idea of, of being on the back of a horse with the reins. It's to be able to control wh what you say. That if you can come to a place that you have control over your mouth and, and are able to pull back on that, that God says that the sin that the rest of the body deals with, you, you, you will be, will, you'll be able to control it. He says it, you'll be a perfect man. Now, it doesn't mean that you'll be perfect but it's the idea of maturity. Again, as I mentioned in the beginning, he is connecting the fact that what you say is an indicator of spiritual maturity. Do you remember when he, when he mentioned this back in the first chapter of James, verse 26? He said, if anyone among you thinks he is religious, spiritually mature, and does not bridle, that's that word, control his tongue, but deceives his own heart. This one's religion or spiritual maturity, so-called, is useless. You see, it is through what someone says. It is through what you say 
that is a great gauge, that thermostat, that, that temperature of where they're at spiritually. And so the starting point, listen, this is important for all of us to hear today. The starting point of spiritual maturity is in the tongue. Why? Well, Matthew 12, 34, Jesus made it pretty clear. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, Jesus told us that what we say is that indicator of who we are. Right, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about that organ in our bodies that pumps blood. It's talking about the inner person, who you are. And who you are, you can tell who you are by what you say. And so James is seeking to illustrate this central fact that one of the foundational keys in us living a life apart from sin revolves around the tongue, that if we, can, if we can focus in on this and begin to watch and, and be slow to speak and watch what we say, that, that the other sin of struggle, uh, that will follow, will be like that domino effect. And so to kind of understand the influence that the tongue really has, James gives these two illustrations. Look there in verse three and four. He gives two illustrations. He says, indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us and we turn their whole body. Anyone ride horses in here? All right, so then you, you will understand this illustration very well. The bit of a horse's mouth, all right? So I got one here to show you. Now, if you look on the screen, listen, if you look on the screen, you'll notice it is this that's what's wrapped around their head, right? And so then these, anyone know what these are called? Right, the reins. So then these go up and the person sitting is able to have control. But it's interesting because it's not so much even the fact that this is wrapped around their head, though that's a factor, but it's the fact that there is the bit. Everyone see this metal part? And see it on the screen for a little bit closer if you have difficult eyesight. Okay, this is what goes in the actual mouth, this, this metal part, okay? And that is what is the connection that is able to control. Now, this is a rather small piece of metal that is then able for the person on the horse to be able to control, listen precisely, what that horse does and where that horse goes. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a horse in person. Anyone ever seen a horse in person? They're rather large, okay? They're not small. Uh, oftentimes, they are weighing up to 1,000 pounds, which is half a ton. They are beastly animals uh, that could uh, kill you if they wanted to, uh, for sure. Uh, step on you and all, all kinds of stuff, okay? Uh, but, but it's amazing because though there's this beast, if you guys want to look at this after service, you can. Um, there is this beast of an animal, but then... A hundred pound girl can get on the back of this horse and control its every move if she knows what she is doing. It's incredible. How does that happen? Small member, small part, big influence. So what is he illustrating? Everyone think about your tongue for a moment. It's really weird. If you like overthink about your tongue, you'll be like, oh, where is it? Where is it? Does it? Is it even resting in my mouth or is it just like always? Exactly. It'll, you'll trip yourselves out. Okay, try about it later. Uh, but, but if you think about it, it's small. 
But the influence, the big influence that it has is tremendous. Then the second thing he uses, he says in verse 4, Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Now, of course, at the time, these were not the ships that uh, James had in mind, though there were large wooden boats that we know that could carry a mass amount of people. And the, the concept is the same, that on the back of these boats that there are, right, that rather compared to the massiveness of the ship, the rudder is rather small. Yet it is that rudder that will make it go to the left or to the right. And so, you know, for some of these ships, those ships can weigh uh, just about a couple hundred thousand tons, which a ton is 2,000 pounds. So it's a lot, huge. Yet the small part of this boat has a tremendous amount of impact. And so what, what he is trying to get to, he comes to a point in verse 5. He says, even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Now, this can be for good or for evil, meaning that, that, right, the power in the tongue is regarding death and life, meaning that it can be a good thing, right? We're just talking about influence in general. It could either be for good, right? Amazing power. I mean, even, even us talking right now, right, that, that as we think about God's word and we're talking about God's word, there is power uh, that, that God is, is, is doing right now. Uh, not just in here, but in the children's ministry rooms as they talk about the word of God uh, in, the, in the main sanctuary uh, and, and so on and so forth. Yet there's also the potential for evil. Proverbs 15, 4 says, A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perversiveness in it breaks the spirit. And there's kind of this, this twofold type of idea again displayed that, that you, could, you could encourage someone with the words that you say, or you could bring them down. You can absolutely destroy someone without laying a finger on them. And oftentimes, the damage can be much worse. You guys ever heard the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. You guys ever, okay, raise your hand if you've ever heard that, that, that saying before. Okay. If you haven't, congratulations, first time, mark it down in your calendar, all right? But listen, it's completely false. Sticks and stones, I mean, it's true, like sticks and stones may break your bones, true. But the second part is not true. Your words will never hurt me. Now, I, I would imagine that someone who was hurt by words came up with this saying because they want to act like it didn't actually hurt them. Because if, if it didn't hurt you, you wouldn't need to come up with the saying. But I have found that the wounds that sticks in stone, I don't think anyone has ever thrown like a rock or stick. I mean, maybe to some extent, but like the wounds that I've experienced from sticks and stones in that sense, physical harm, I mean, I might have scars, but, but you heal. But I found it to be much more difficult to heal from a wound that results in what someone has said to you. You see, when you get hurt, you know, essentially, you know, a scab, like your body heals itself. But the hurt that can come from the power of words is something different, and the healing process is something altogether different. So there's power here. And you guys know what Uncle Ben says, with great power comes 
There you go. So not only is there the influence of the tongue, but there's also the danger of the tongue. We find this in the next section in the second half of verse 5 to verse 8. And so we'll read that uh, and continue on. Look there at the second half of verse 5. He says, See how great a little uh, forest, see how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members, our body, that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. It's rather intense language, would you agree? Uh, you know, talking about hell, talking about fire, untamed animals full of deadly poison. He's talking about the danger that the tongue is able to produce. And uh, he, he continues on with his uh, great illustrations. We'll see four more throughout our time today. Uh, but look at the, uh, what he kind of continues on in verse 5. He says, see how great a forest a little fire kindles. And he goes on to say that the tongue is a fire, that it is set. We're told here, how does he put it? It's awesome. He says, it is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. It sets on fire a course of nature and is set on fire by hell itself. It's no joke. He, he describes the tongue as an uncontrolled fire. Now, we, in being in California, we understand the concept of a wildfire uh, and the damage that it can do. If you can remember, uh, you know, the different fires up, up north not too long ago, taking out entire cities. Uh, the damage is massive, but the start could be rather small, right? It's the same kind of concept with the horses and the ships. He kind of continues on talking about a fire. That it could just be a simple match, that could either light a candle in your house to make it smell like gingerbread cookies, or it could be a flame that destroys entire cities and neighborhoods and people's very lives. And you see, just like with fire, there needs to be a controlled environment. It needs to be handled with responsibility. So does the tongue, because the potential influence for danger is massive. See, the tongue, we're told here, is a part of the body in a way that it can defile the whole body. Look at verse 5 and 6. That, that it can actually determine one's eternal destiny. I want you to think about the danger here and notice the connection between what we say and our eternal destination. Check out Romans chapter 10. Look on the screen, verse 9 and 10, and then verse 13. Okay, I want you to, as we read this, notice the connection of what is said to where we will be going. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that is to say, Jesus, you are Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, that's that inner being. And with the mouth, this is a physical mouth that it's talking about. It's not like spiritual, if you like spiritually confess. No, with your mouth, confession is made into salvation for whoever calls 
Think about that. Calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you see the connection between the mouth and the heart? That the influence for, for good and evil is both there regarding our eternal destination. Or opposite, that if you, with your mouth, blaspheme God, saying that Jesus is not your Lord and not the Lord, then that will also determine your eternal destination. But remember, it is what comes out of the mouth that is connected with what? What is in your heart. There's a passage in Matthew chapter 15, and I'll read it in a moment. Uh, but it's a rather uh, interesting passage because the Pharisees, who always try to find problems with Jesus and his disciples, basically came to Jesus and they said, hey, yo, Jesus. I doubt they said yo, but they said Jesus, okay? Um, your disciples, they're not washing their hands as the law of Moses told us that we should. And so Jesus, of course, responds with an incredible parable, shuts them down, as always. And then Peter, though, comes and he basically asks him, like, hey, can you explain to us what you were telling them? We didn't get it. So Jesus responds in this way. He says, so Jesus, are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that what enters the mouth, notice, goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, and these are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. This makes total sense, right? If you eat something and it goes into your system, it is then eliminated, right? It's, it's removed. It doesn't, it doesn't spiritually uh, defile you before God. No matter how you know, something tasted and how bad it tasted, it's not going to spiritually defile you, make you dirty before God. Okay? It might make you feel a little dirty, a little just nasty on the inside. But, but listen, there's the physical connection. But this is what the Pharisees were so focused on. You see, in the Old Testament, God told the Israelites to wash their hands before they eat. Now, for you and I, that sounds like, yeah, that's a pretty good rule. Like, we have that rule in my house. My mom's always asking, did you wash your hands before you eat? And we have that in our mind. Well, back then, that didn't make any sense. The discovery of bacteria and germs was not yet existent. And so uh, this is another topic, but the apologetics behind this. God tells them to basically, they don't know why, but God knows it was to avoid disease and destroying them as a nation. Hey, before you eat, wash your hands. The Pharisees, of course, as they do with all things, they take it too far. And so they got to this point where if you wanted to eat, you better have like a 10 minute gap beforehand to be able to wash your hands like they thought you would. It was crazy. They, they would do things like, even still today, some Jews in Israel, that in order to wash their hands, you know, they, they, they wash it in, in the bowl, but then that dirty water that was on their hands, they don't want to come back on them in any way. So they, they kind of dry their hands, but they make sure to have like their hands only dripping this way because if it comes back this way on their wrists or hands, then they're gonna be defiled. They gotta perform the whole thing over. And so it's, a, it's this whole atrocity, but what's the point? They come to Jesus, they, hey, they're so focused on the physical and Jesus says, no, no, no. It's not what goes inside. It's not that bad burrito you ate. It's the fact of what comes out of your mouth. That 
is impactful. There's power. There's influence. Second thing, not only an uncontrolled fire, but he describes the tongue as an untamed animal. Uh, you guys ever been to the zoo before? Uh, man, uh, zoo is an interesting place. It's always a trip to see, right? Big, big animals that, now they're not tame in the sense like if you went back there, they wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have too much fun with the lion. But, but they're, they're controlled, right? They're controlled. Like, like there's every animal that humans are able to, to have control over in that sense. And he says that the only untamed animal is the animal of the tongue. He defines it as an unruly evil, meaning it's out of rule. It's a deadly poison, full of deadly poison. I believe that this might be another reference to the idea of kind of like an animal full of deadly poison, right? Like a snake. And, you know, poison often comes through, right, the mouth, whether it's the bite. And there's, there's poison in that bite, um, what's kind of interesting about that concept is, is it's hidden, right? You, you don't necessarily know unless you like know snakes, like if that snake is poisonous or not, but you will certainly find out if it bites you, right? And there's kind of this hidden type of thing. And, and for our tongues, it's not this overt evil, but it's full of deadly poison, all pointing us the danger of the tongue. And so James is really bringing us to this place of not dismissing what we say. Not saying, oh, I just said it, it was no big deal. Because isn't that often what we can do? We can often say, oh, like, yeah, but that was like a year ago that I said that. But the influence, the power, the danger is still being affected. And so he wants us, I believe, to understand the weight of our words. But he ends with, with uh, this kind of section talking about the tongue talking about the hypocrisy of the tongue. What's so dangerous about the tongue is the fact that we can be so inconsistent that we can be hypocrites when it comes to the things that we say. Notice there in verse nine, he says, with it, with our tongue, we bless our God and father. And with that same tongue, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. You guys know what a hypocrite is? All right, someone, uh, someone in short, not like a, don't give me a story or commentary, but, but what, what, is a, what is a hypocrite? Ethan, very short. Someone that says something and then does that thing that Perfect. they said not to do. Perfect. So says something and then does something that they said not to do. Any, would anyone add to that? Sawyer? Gavin Newsom. Okay, there you go. That's, that's an example. So we all know what a hypocrite is, right? We see it in the political world. We see it in, in, our, in our families at time. We see it uh, everywhere. And we can all be convicted of being a hypocrite, right? Where, where we say something. Now, that's an example of saying something and not doing it. The example that is given here is to say something to God in the sense of praise and worship, but then with that same tongue, that same same mouth, you don't have a different mouth, that you go home and you absolutely demolish your brother or sister with words. 
right? And, he, and he's saying that there's this inconsistency that, that we can praise God with, with one word and within potentially even that same breath, we can curse men who he says are made in the likeness of God. He is essentially saying in this passage, it does not make sense. If you're taking notes, you want to put down, it does not make sense. And he says that these things ought not to be so. I love how straightforward this is. He's very clear. He says this inconsistency with our speech should not be something. That, that when you come in here and, and worship God and you begin using your voice and words, now it doesn't mean that you have to be perfect, but it, it ought to mean, right? Uh, let, me, let me give you an example. If some of you come in here and worship, but then five hours later when you're at home, you, you, you speak extremely disrespectful to your mom. God would rather have you be quiet during worship and actually respect your mom. He, that, that would be his choice. Now, hopefully in our spiritual maturity, that can be a difference over time. But the inconsistency is something that, that God does not want in our lives. And he uses a couple illustrations to, to say this. He first uses, uh, notice two more illustrations. He talks about uh, with a water spring. Uh, have you guys ever been to, uh, to a river before? Anyone go to like a river? You're like, you're like, oh, my family's like big river people. Like we have a boat and we go. And uh, there's, there's some people. I never grew up as a, as a river, river person, but now I got some friends that go. And so it's, it's always uh, a fun trip. But he says here in verse 11, does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? The answer is no. Uh, there's no river that's like half of it is salt water and then the other half is like fresh water. Now, sometimes if it's by the ocean, those things can mix. Uh, but you understand the idea. Imagine floating down the river, nice, nice hot day, river's cool and clean, and all of a sudden it turns to salt water. It'd be, be very alarming, right? Uh, not that I have anything against the beach, but you understand the concept. He says, no, no, that, it doesn't happen. That, that it's not fresh and salty. It's, it's an either or. I think that's it. It's an either or type of thing. And he uses the illustration of water. He also uses the illustra illustration of a fruit tree. He says, can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? And we have fruit trees at home. What kind of, you can yell it out. What kind of fruit trees you guys got? Lemon, plums? Ooh, ooh, I love plums. So, so imagine, imagine going to your apricot tree, okay? Imagine going out to your apricot tree. Ah, going to grab some apricots. And there on the tree are olives. It'd be very alarming. Uh, now, I don't like olives, so that would be a disappointment. But so, now, now, that sounds pretty cool, right? Shh. Imagine if you had like a tree that like every week was like a different fruit. That'd be pretty cool. Um, but the idea is that when someone plants an apple orchard, he's expecting apples. There, there, there is an expectation that, that, right, even Jesus talks about a good tree bears what? Good, good fruit. And a bad tree bears what? Bad fruit. And that, and that they don't, a good tree does not bear bad fruit and a bad tree does not bear good fruit. That what James is pointing out is the often consistency that we can have in our speech. So the question of the day is we just went through 12 verses all about the power of the tongue, the influence, the danger, the hypocrisy. And there, this is something that each and every one of us, there's not one of us exempt today 
it is an area of oftentimes sin. It's an, it's an area that if we can allow the Holy Spirit to control, it'll influence and have impact on the rest of our life. But what do we do? How, how, you might say, I recognize an inconsistency. I recognize how I, I sin often with what I say, and, and I understand the weight of it. And I, and I want God to intervene. What do we do? Well, if the tongue is so wild, uh, do we need to take like a class on how to tame it? Do we need to like watch some YouTube videos? Or, or what if we try something where it's like, okay, we're going to determine every time we say something that we shouldn't have, this is like bite our tongue. And then over time, we'll learn and we'll have this response that will be, no, that stuff won't work. It might help with like temporary behavior changes. But remember, what is the tongue connected to? connected to the heart, right? It's an evidence. It's an evidence of showing what we say is who we are. And so if we go and try to fix like our physical tongue, it's not going to get to the, the root or the, the source of the problem. You guys remember when we first talked about the, the AC thermostats on the sides of the room? as a thermometer, right, as an indicator, a gauge. And we talked about how the, the tongue uh, isn't, isn't the necessarily the, the problem. The problem, is, right, it's just an indicator. It just shows us what's inside. And so imagine if, if the, the AC shut off right now and it started getting really warm because there's 160 of us in here today. And so it just started getting really warm. And, and now we would first go try to fix the thermostat but there comes to a point where if the AC is broken, it has nothing to do with the thermostat. You see, on this roof right now are many different air conditioning units, okay? And that, that, if that's broken, going to the thermostat isn't going to change a thing. We need to get on the roof. Now, we're not going to go on the roof right now, but you understand. We need to get to the heart of the problem. And so it's not just about us trying. I'm just going to try to really focus on what I say. And, and uh, I'm going to do these different things. Now, some practical tips might be helpful. And if you can think of any, go ahead. But the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And so we don't want to just um, treat a symptom. We want to treat the source. And so if that is that gauge, that's that thermostat of what's in here, then how do we get in here? It is a spiritual issue. And with any spiritual issue, we need the grace of God. And so I'm just going to give you uh, two, two steps, okay, uh, to, to focus on. If God has been speaking to you through his word and you want to respond, right? We're not just to be doers or we're not supposed to be just hearers of the word. We are to be doers, we first need to repent of any sin regarding what we say and not make excuses or justify. You know, we are really good at making excuses for things we say, right? Well, but she said, well, but he did. And we're really good at making excuses and just, justifiably. And I'm, I'm telling you, I'm the king of it. Uh, ain't no one gonna out-excuse me, okay? Uh, yet we need, listen, we need to bring those excuses and all those justifications and throw them in the garbage where they belong. 
and we need to humbly, humbly come before God and say, God, I have messed up. I have been too harsh with my words. I've been sarcastically mean. I, I've been, I've been, I haven't spoken up when I should have spoken up. And you repent. So you look back, say, God, I, I, this is where I've messed up. But additionally, now when this afternoon comes and you're around your family, maybe some friends, you're at school the next few days, what do you do? Well, this is where we have to fall on the grace of God. Because if it's a heart issue, then it's an issue that we need God to change and transform. We need his work in our life. So here are two verses I'll give you as prayers that you can use. Psalm 141, verse three and four, says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing to practice wicked works. I love this because it involves the Lord. It involves not just this, I'm gonna pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm gonna, I'm gonna roll up my sleeves and we're gonna get to work, I'm gonna watch what I say. No, you ain't, gonna, you ain't gonna make it very far. But if you can come to the Lord and you can say, God, I need you to set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. I, I need you to put a door on my lips so I don't say anything I shouldn't say and I do say things that you want me to say. God, I, I put you as the doorkeeper of my mouth. God, I need you. I, I rest fully upon your grace and nothing upon my ability. Pray that prayer. The other one that I want to give you is Psalm 19, verse 14, which says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. This is a daily one. You might want to memorize this one. And notice, I love the connection, mouth and heart. He says, let the words of my mouth just be acceptable. The idea is pleasing. That at the beginning of your day, even right now as we close, if you genuinely pray, God, pray, I want the words of my mouth to be pleasing to you. I want to just focus, can, can I get to the end of Sunday, this day, where the things that I say are pleasing to you. And then he says, the meditation of my heart. And why, why these two things? They're connected. The meditation, the thoughts, the inward thoughts. God, I want those to be pleased. Maybe I don't say it, but I was thinking it. God, I, I don't want just my, my words, but I want even my thoughts to be pleasing to you because he is our strength. Listen, your, the strength in this area is not gonna come from you. It's gonna come from him. Now, some of you are big time talkers, right? You just like, you just love talking. That's great. God can use that for his glory, uh, for sure. And some of you are rather slow to speak. That's a, that's, a, that's a good thing too, right? A lot of that's personality. On average, if someone lives uh, 80 year life, I want to give you some statistics. It's average that someone speaks about 7,000 words a day. It'd be 49,000 words a week, 210,000 words every month, 2,555,000 a year. And if you lived eight years, you'll speak 204 million words. And God says, 
that on the day that we meet, we're going to talk about every single word. There is no such thing as an empty word. All words have weight. And so we need God to be with our mouths. Amen? Lord, we come before you and, oh man, this is, uh, this is something daily, Lord, so daily. And we thank you for your word to us. Lord, if you didn't think words have weight, you wouldn't have written us a book, but you did and you do. And so God, we pray. First, Lord, we confess the sin, uh, Lord, of, of, of our mouths. Lord, that we have said things, even maybe today, that we shouldn't have. Lord, we, we have said things, Lord, even just our tone wrong. Lord, we know we're never going to be perfect until we see you, but we want to pursue holiness when it comes to our speech. And so, God, we pray right now, Lord, that you'd set a guard in our mouths. We pray that you would help us that the, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you because you are our strength and you ultimately, Lord, are our redeemer. Lord, and we want to please you. That's our aim today. So God, we pray that you go before us, not only this week, but this day. Lord, may our speech to one another, our family, our friends, and everyone we come in contact with, be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray.